<clears throat> Hello everyone. In this first podcast, we're going to be looking at pre-colonial Native American cultures. So let's get started. The early American civilizations began with the arrival of nomads from Siberia, essentially from Asia. They came over on the Bering Strait, which it's now an underwater land bridge. But before when it was above water, it was, you know, essentially a land bridge. It connected Asia uh, going into Russia through Siberia to Alaska. But diversified cultures and societies started developing around 10,000 to 2,500 years ago as these nomadic people, they started spreading all throughout the continent. And the first group I'm going to really look at are the cultures of ancient Mexico. So this region known as Mesoamerica, M-E-S-O, America, A-M-E-R-I-C-A, Mesoamerica, all one word, uh, and this agricultural revolution started to occur. That's basically what happened and how these cultures started really taking off. So the peoples, they started domesticating plants around 10,000 years ago. Over the next several thousand years, farmers started adding other crops like beans, tomatoes, mainly corn that was coming from maize, M-A-I-Z-E. And we call this an agricultural revolution because these crops, you can dry them, store them, you know, people can then settle down in one place and build a society. You don't have to keep foraging depending on the seasons because the things will spoil or they won't grow during certain times. So the Olmecs are the first specific culture I'm going to talk about here. The Olmecs, O-L-M-E-C-S, the Olmecs, these are going to be the first city builders in the Americas, and they're going to be constructing very large plazas, which are these pyramidal, pyramid-shaped structures, and they sculpted these enormous heads chiseled from basalt rock. And their cultural influence is going to be spreading all throughout Mesoamerica, most likely with trade that they had with their neighbors, by about 100 BCE, this is sometimes referred to as BC, but we call it BCE in the historical tradition because it stands for before the common era, BCE. But by around 100 BCE, the Olmecs example had inspired the building of Teotihuacan, T-E-O-T-I-H-U-A-C-A-N, where it had been this very small town in central Mexico and it gets transformed into this bustling metropolis of all these towering pyramids. It's going to have markets, palaces with mural paintings, schools, suburbs at around its height at around 650 CE. Teotihuacan spanned more than 10 square miles and had a population of around a quarter million people, which is larger than Rome, the city of Rome at the time. Next group we're going to look at are the Mayans or the Mayas, some people call them the Mayans. But these people definitely benefited from contact with the Olmecs and their city of Teotihuacan. But the Mayans, they build their civilization in the lowland jungles of Mesoamerica. So they're a little bit further south. They're not quite as like centralized right in the heart of Mexico like the Olmecs were. They had spread a little further down. Think like the Yucatan Peninsula kind of area. That's where the big uh, ruins of Chichen Itza are for example this lowland jungles moving in through central america that's going to be where the mayans were but here they're going to be building cities with these big palaces bridges aqueducts you know 
large bass that they like chisel down into the ground. They also will build huge astronomical observatories are huge at the time for them. They build pyramids with temples on them as well. But the Mayans are a little different. Their priests actually develop their own written language. Mathematicians, Mayan mathematicians, they discover the zero. Zero had not existed prior to the Mayans. And astronomers of the Mayan culture, they devise a calendar that's going to be more accurate than any existing at the time. And a lot of people have heard about the Mayan calendar that, you know, they said, you know, the world was going to end in 2012. That's simply not true. The Mayan calendar, just the furthest they had developed it was to the furthest point was 2012. They hadn't developed it any further past that point. They had no need to really, but if they had continuing, then most likely they would have had another calendar perhaps. But between the third and ninth centuries, CE or common era used to be called AD, but this is gonna be from like the year 200 to 800, like in those years. The Maya civilization is gonna be boasting around 50, 50 urban centers scattered all throughout the Yucatan Peninsula, Belize, Guatemala, Honduras. This is that area that I was mentioning before. So they're very, very heavily influential in this Central American region. Next group are the Aztecs. So the Aztecs, they originally lived in Northern Mesoamerica, but then they migrate South and settle in Central Mexico by about the 13th century, by the 1200s. By the end of the 15th century, the 1400s, they would be ruling over a very vast empire from their capital called Tenochtitlan, T-E-N, O-C-H-T-I-T-L-A-N. And this is an island metropolis city that they have built around a quarter of a million people are going to be housed there. And they have built a very large plaza in the center of the island that held very large palaces. There was also their great temple of the sun. They have built three causeways or bridges that connected their island to the mainland. There were several temples all around that had paintings of all their gods. They had these various zoological or animal and botanical gardens, marketplaces as well. And the Aztecs are a little different in that we specifically know that they had a very stratified society. And the Aztec ruler, or who was their chief speaker, would share all the, share all the governing power with the aristocrats, the wealthy, who monopolized all the positions of religious, military, and political leadership, while the commoners, which these were gonna consist of merchants, farmers, craft workers or artisans, they performed all the manual labor, all the hard stuff. And the Aztecs also had slaves. Many were captives that they had taken in war that they had as they were going fight battle of neighboring cultures and societies. And they would defeat them and then take the people as slaves back with them. Uh, some other slaves were taken from the ranks of the commoners that were forced by poverty to sell themselves or their children as slaves. This was a very common practice for various native cultures at the time. So the next we're going to be looking at is further north into uh, the modern day United States. Specifically, we're going to be looking at the southwest region here. And the two cultures we're going to talk about first are going to be the Mogollon and Hohokam people. So these two cultures, they are going to really flourish 
in New Mexico and southern Arizona during the first thousand years CE or AD. So both of these cultures, they tended to cluster their dwellings or homes near streams, which allowed them to adopt irrigation systems for maize cultivation uh, that they had also performed in central Mexico, other cultures had. But the Mogollon, M-O-G-O-L-L-O-N, these are the big master potters of the Southwest, the Hohokam, H-O-H-O-K-A-M, like M as a mic, but they had pioneered and created these huge, vast, complex irrigation systems in southern Arizona, and it allowed them to support one of the largest populations in pre-contact North America. So the Mogollon are the big potters, you know, with building clay artifacts, things like that. Whereas the Hohokam, they make all the big irrigation systems, but they're not going to be huge city builders like the uh, Olmecs have been. But to the north of the Mogollon and Hohokam people are going to be the Anasazi, A-N-A-S-A-Z-I, otherwise known as the Ancestral Pueblos. So the Pueblo culture that many people know of from, you know, the 1800s to present, their ancestors, the Ancestral Pueblo, were called the Anasazis. But they were in the Four Corners region. And the Four Corners region that is Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah, where all those the corners of those states all meet at one point. So, and it's this big, huge area that they were uh, spread out all over. But the Anasazi adapted corn, beans, squash to relatively high altitude in the Colorado Plateau region. And they would also start selling off their growing surplus and they were able to transform into a very prosperous society that became very complex as well. They built villages with very complexly built uh, masonry buildings, which these are going to be apartment-like structures up to about four stories high. They would have hundreds of rooms and they were building these masonry buildings in high altitude places as well, like Mesa Verde in Colorado, Canyon de Chile in Arizona. But one of their biggest villages is going to be Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. This is going to be the largest center of Pueblo settlement, and they were linked to the wider region around them by hundreds of miles of straight, wide roads. In the eastern woodlands area, so looking at a different geographic point here, so going to kind of look in like the Louisiana to Mississippi region. But Europeans, when they finally come over, they will be fascinated by these huge, large earthen mounds in the region now known as Poverty Point in northeastern Louisiana. And it's thought that these structures, which are basically six semicircular rings, they rise about nine feet in height. They're more than half a mile wide in diameter. But they think they may have been sites for studying the stars, potentially. And they've been dated to have been built around 1000 BCE. But hundreds of other mounds were built around 2,000 years ago by the Adena and Hopewell cultures. Adena is spelled A-D-E-N-A, and Hopewell is like the words hope and well, H-O-P-E-W-E-L-L. But these cultures built other mounds around 2,000 years ago uh, as burial places for their leading men and women. And these mounds, when they've 
done archaeological digs on them, they found various items like antler headdresses, copper necklaces, also shells and pearls. And they found these items where they can trace them as far north as Canada, even in the west of Wyoming, east of Florida. So they, it's speculated they most likely had various trading networks with the cultures all around them and the societies around them. But then there are the Mississippians. So by the 12th century, the Mississippians, their culture have become the big city builders north of the Rio Grande. So they're quite some time after the Olmecs and in a different area, of course. But their towns radiated for hundreds of miles in every direction from their trading network hub at Cahokia. And Cahokia was a port city that had several thousand people. It was directly across from the St. Louis area, from the city of St. Louis now. It was directly across from there at the Mississippi, Mississippi and Missouri rivers was where it was. And Cahokia is another city that was very comparable to the Mesoamerican city builders. They had plazas filled with surplus crops. The city was known for the structures that were surrounding the plazas, which were more than a hundred flat top pyramidal mounds that were crowned with religious temples and homes for their elite. And then in the Great Plains area of North America, the migratory people, the nomadic people, were very different. They didn't cultivate crops near water sources. So they're different because they depended on hunting and foraging, migrating across the area and the region to exploit the sources that are very dependent on the seasons. Their primary source of game was going to be bison or buffalo. In the Great Basin area, you which the Great Basin area is present-day Nevada and Utah, Eastern California, Western Wyoming and Colorado. They were Numic speakers. Their language was a Numic dialect, N-U-M-I-C, but they're migratory as well. They moved in small family groups all around the region for limited food resources available from season to season. The men would track elk and antelope, trap smaller animals, birds, even like toads, rattlesnakes, insects. Their main sources of food were going to be edible seeds, nuts, plants, which women would gather and store and baskets that the women wove and they would consume these various things in times of scarcity. So whenever there wasn't a whole lot of game around to hunt, they would depend on their rations, basically, that they had stockpiled. In the Pacific Northwest, there are various groups known as the Nootkins, the Macaws, the Tlingits, the Chimchians, and Quackyoodles. So if you don't know how to spell those, I'm going to go one at a time here. So the Nootkins, these are N-O-O-T-K-A-N-S. The Nootkins. Macaws are M as in Mike, A-K-A-H-S, Macaws. Tlingits, T-L-I-N, as in Nike, G-I-T-S, the Chimchians, get a little tongue-tied there sometimes. A lot of these are very difficult to pronounce at times, but the Chimchians, these are spelled 
T-S-H-I-M as in Mike, S-H-I-N as in Nike, S, and then Quacky Utils, K-W-A-K-I-U-T-L-S. But these were mainly going to be fishermen. And what they did was they would spear net salmon, trap, you know, some sea mammals like sea otters, seals, sea lions, things like that. Uh, they gather shellfish. They also launched canoes to try and hunt out to sea. The largest watercraft that they would use to harpoon whales uh, were going to be nearly 45 feet long from bow to stern or front to end, and they're nearly six feet wide. So these are some pretty large watercraft that they're making here because, you know, whales are big. Got to have a big craft in order to haul them in. But the Pacific Northwest people evolved a society that had very sharp distinctions among their nobles, commoners, slaves. And most of their slaves were women and children that got captured in raids on other villages. So very similar to like the Mayans and the Aztecs that had slaves as well in how they possessed them. But the non-slaves would devote their lives to accumulating and building up and then redistributing their wealth among other villagers and these very elaborate ceremonies to confirm or enhance their social prestige. Another area of Native Americans going to look to next is the frozen north. So in present day Alaska and Canada, this is very inconducive to farming or agriculture as most of us know. So in the far north, the Arctic tundra, it's a very, very barren frozen area. It's completely devoid of trees. Temperatures are below freezing for most of the year, right? But the Inuit or Eskimos, um, Northern Alaska, they would harvest whales from boats that they called umiaks. U-M-I-A-K-S, so U-M-I-A-K-S. But these boats, they made them by stretching walrus skin over a frame that they made of driftwood. And you think that can't really hold much, but it could actually hold more than a ton in weight. These were very hardy boats that they built. So that's what they were making the Eskimos. But there was a different set of people called the Algonquian speakers that are going to be in the east. And you got Athapaskan speakers in the west they are in kind of the subarctic area they're nomads <clears throat> but they would move their summer fishing camps to like berry patches in the fall moose and caribou hunting grounds in winter so they depended on you know the seasons and the migratory patterns of the game they hunted so looking at all the rise of agriculture in the Americas, this kind of comes through accidental experimentation. And these modern day species of corn probably derive or come from a Mesoamerican grass originally called teosint, T-E-O-S-I-N-T-E. But ancient people would gather it and then collect the small grains that it yielded. And then over time it just evolved into corn through experimentation. But looking at since European contact, corn, squash, beans, and potatoes, they've accounted for about three-fifths of the world's crops. And many of these have revolutionized the entire global diet. But just kind of looking at some other aspects of these pre-colonial Native Americans, 
in the Andes Mountains in South America, Peruvian engineers, they put tens of thousands of people to work building terraces, dikes, and canals that helped increase effectiveness of all their agricultural productivity. So it was kind of helping them navigate the waterways and improve their irrigation systems as well. The Amazon rainforest was actually made by people, if people, if you don't believe me. But uh, the farmers, what they did was they cultivated the food bearing trees over thousands of years. They would then cut down the less useful species and gradually replace them with ones that were better suited for human use and food. So that's how the Amazon rainforest, it took tens of thousands of years to get there, but that's how it developed. And fire was used by natives in North America, especially to clear any undergrowth or brush and fallen trees. Because once you clear it out, then what happens as the crops and grains, as everything and the plant life that starts coming back, it eventually comes back more lush. It kind of replenishes all the soil as well. So like think about when you look at volcanic areas, volcanic soil is some of the most fertile in the world, right? And when we look at areas like, you know, Northern California is going through a lot of wildfires, but once things start growing again, it's usually very lush and beautiful, right? So hopefully we will still have that very luscious, beautiful area to enjoy for centuries to come in that area, right? But looking at influence of geography and climate as well, you know, there are some innovations and limitations naturally and otherwise that start popping up with the pre-colonial Native Americans. So the north-south orientation that we speak of that refers to natural barriers to plant and animal transfer that arise. So Mesoamerica and South America, they're separated by a natural barrier. It's very tropical, equatorial, lowland jungles. It caused plants like corn several thousand years to jump from one region to the next. And sometimes the transfer of crops like that wouldn't have even happened without European contact because they had ships where they would take it on board their ship and then get off somewhere else and then transplant seeds and such to then make that transfer from one area to another. But Eurasian people, Europeans and Asians, Eurasians altogether, they tended to live very closely with animals, uh, especially large animals. Uh, most diseases affecting people kind of stem from them. So for instance, measles, tuberculosis, smallpox, they all came from diseases that were afflicting cattle. And the upside was that these Eurasians developed a very hardy immune system as a result. So victims that were infected with these diseases, when they survived to adulthood, they acquired immunity to all these diseases that they had been exposed to. But virtually no large mammals were domesticated in the Americas. So Native Americans very scarcely domesticated any animals. They usually only think domesticated things like turkeys, maybe dogs, guinea pigs, 
uh, Muscovy ducks, M-U-S-C-O-V-Y. Uh, the largest mammal that they domesticated was the llama. And it was so they could take the alpaca, the wool, from it. But Native Americans, they're spared most of these major diseases that affected Europeans until 1492. That is the famous year that Columbus makes contact in the Americas, right? So Europeans, they realized the infections they had experienced as children back in the old world, they spread like wildfire through all these indigenous villages, especially among adults. Adults received the greatest damage from these, but native communities often came under attack from multiple diseases at the same time. And these diseases, along with wars with colonists, eventually they would kill natives by the millions, while the European populations just increased and spread. But most of the continent's most dramatic changes occurred in just the few centuries prior to European contact. Still poorly understood, but the most influential civilizations just suddenly collapsed, like the Olmecs and the Mayans. They, it was like one day they were here, next day they were gone. But uh, the Magolan, they were faded out by the 12th century. The Hohokam and Pueblos were gone by the 14th century. Uh, the same happened with the Eastern Woodlands people. Most of the Mississippian population, including Cahokia, was virtually gone by the 14th century. But some things that did endure, uh, there was the trading city of Paquim. So the Magolan may have helped to establish a trade city called Paquim, P-A-Q-U-I-M as in Mike E, in present-day Chihuahua. And Paquim was built around 1300, had more than 2,000 rooms. There was a very sophisticated water and sewage system, unlike any other in the Americas in any of these major cities. And until their demise in the 15th century, so in the 1400s, Paquim was the center of a massive trading network. They would bring macaws and turkeys for export and their feathers. They would channel prized feathers from various animals like peacocks and all around the Native Americas uh, societies. Uh, turquoise was a big one, big commodity. Seashells, they also worked copper all throughout the region. But uh, the Natchez of the lower Mississippi Valley, they spoke a dialect of language called Muscogean, Muscogean speaking group. Uh, they maintained both that temple mound building tradition and the very rigid social distinctions that the Mississippians had as well. Some other Muscogean speaking groups got rid of that rigid hierarchical social model and they tried to embrace more flexible and egalitarian villages that developed into big confederacies of natives like the Creeks, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw groups as well. But north of this southeastern region we're looking at here, where the Muscogean speakers were, north of that were the ones that spoke Iroquoian, or like Iroquoian, you might think. I-R-O-Q-U-O-I-A-N, Iroquoian. But these people, they divided into a southern faction and a northern faction. So the southern faction is where the Cherokee were. And there was also another group called the Tuscaroras. In the north, 
they had the Iroquois nation and the Hurons as well. And a very distinctive feature of these Iroquian speakers aren't the big mounds, but instead they were known for this ar architectural invention known as the longhouse. And it stretched up to about 10 feet in length and would house as many as 10 families. It was huge, actually. But the Algonquins now, so the Algonquins, they are people that lived along the Atlantic seaboard and the Great Lakes. They had smaller communities than the Muscogean or Iroquian peoples did. By the 15th century, the coastal communities in southern New England, all the way down to Virginia, they had adopted agriculture to supplement their diets. If they were in the colder northern climates, though, they had shorter growing seasons, so at times they would depend almost entirely on hunting, fishing, and gathering plants like wild rice. And so looking at a completely different geographic area now, we're going to look at the Caribbean cultures now. So in the Greater Antilles, these are going to be the islands of present-day Cuba, Hispaniola that has Haiti and the Dominican Republic, Jamaica, there's Puerto Rico, all of these, there were cultures that hold, held even greater resources than any of the others we've talked about. So the earliest inhabitants of this area were called the Sibonis, C-I-B-O-N as in Nike, E-Y-S. Most likely from Florida, is where they're speculated to have come from. But the Taino Indians, T-A-I-N-O-S, the Tainos, they came later from the northern region of South America. So they didn't migrate down south, they migrated up north from South America, they migrated north. And then they expanded all through the Bahamas and the Greater Antilles region. But the Taino chiefs, they were called caciques, C-A-C-I-Q-U-E-S, along with a small number of like noble families. They would rule all the island tribes. They controlled all the production and distribution of food, tools. They also exacted or demanded tribute or like taxes in a way from the great mass of the commoners, farmers and fishermen things of that sort. But uh, by the end of the 15th century, there's around five to 10 million people that had lived north of the Rio Grande. There's perhaps another million living in the Caribbean. They were spread among 350 societies and spoke nearly as many distinct languages. So we had this great, huge influx of culture. You know, it was already bustling here in the Americas, in the Western Hemisphere, and then once European contact happens, it's going to completely change all that. So, hope you enjoyed this short little podcast on the pre-colonial Native American cultures. Stick around for more with American History with Professor Cheryl Boswell.